0: Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Marie Severson. Marie is passionate about all things neuro and is here to discuss her experience pursuing the CBIS credential. This is the Certified Brain Injury Specialist credential and demonstrates that you're committed to staying current with the latest brain injury research, treatment, and practice information. Marie does such a great job presenting the information in our discussion. I really enjoyed learning about this process and being able to compare it to some of the other certifications that are out there. My name is Leanne Porter, I'm your host, and without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you, Marie.
1: Hi, Leanne. I'm a huge fan. Thank you for having me.
0: Yay. All right. So I'm really excited for our topic today. Um, it's something I've been wanting to learn more about. And so I'm really glad that you can share your own process um, through getting your um, certified brain injury specialist. All right. So well, before we dive into the topic and unpacking like the process Um, to get this certification and what it means to maintain the certification, and then just what it means overall for your job and the work that you do. Um, Tell me a little bit about you. Where are you? What do you do? Yes.
1: So I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and I've been a speech language pathologist for since 2017. It's like a, a little over three and a half years Um, I have, I'm currently working in inpatient acute rehab at a freestanding rehabilitation hospital, which is a really unique and exciting setting. Um, but I also work in acute care and private practice outpatient. And I've also had experience in skilled nursing as well. So I feel like in, in a relatively short amount of time, I've experienced the majority of the settings, which has been really wonderful. I've enjoyed it. Um, so in addition to just sort of enjoying the different settings that I work in. Um, I also serve on my state organization for speech pathology, and I'm really passionate about learning and education, and I have presented at ASHA as a grad student, and I've presented at WISHA um, on medical SLP topics, which I really enjoyed. So in general, I've just sort of, I've been trying to learn as much as possible and learning from other people and experts such as um, your guests. and. Um, Just you know, just trying to sort of absorb it all, so I can do the best for my patients. Um, It's
0: really fun. Good, good. I I love that mentality, and I love that approach to the field. Um, And I think you touched on something really important. You know, it's not just learning from books or courses, but learning from your colleagues and the people that you're working Mm -hmm. with. um, Also, not necessarily the people that you're working with, but just other SLPs that are practicing in similar settings who may or may not even be located like in your town. So I think that's really cool. I'm a big proponent of us all just like connecting and talking about our work and how we can improve it and be better at it, so, okay. All right, so CBIS, Mm -hmm. four special little letters that we can tag on after our name. What is the appeal? What is the purpose? Why do we want to seek this out?
1: Oh, That's such a great question. I think for everyone, it's a little bit different. Um, I can speak to myself personally. Um, Working with the brain injury population, I noticed I was seeing a lot of patients who were recovering from brain injuries. And I felt like in the acute rehab setting, it was really important that I had just extra clinical education and practice um, in that area because it's such a special population. And there are so many things not just related to the brain injury, but related to um, the uh, chronic sort of lifelong issues that patients with brain injury have um, that I I didn't know when I uh, first started as a speech therapist. So I was seeing a lot of patients with brain injury. And in my setting, we do have some specialized, we have a special physician who has um, special brain injury certification, and we also have a brain injury committee. So there was a lot of work going on in my hospital related to brain injury. And I felt like really drawn to that population. So I felt as though I needed to sort of have a little bit more um, education under my belt for that. And an occupational therapist at my hospital has the brain injury certification, and she told me a little bit about it. And I just thought it was, it was just perfect. It was just the perfect amount of education to sort of get me started learning about brain injury. Good.
0: So then what I'm hearing is the CBIS um, certificate certification is not just SLP specific. like mm-hmm. is this open for all rehab disciplines?
1: It is. It's open for adult and pediatric focused SLPs as well. It does cover the lifespan of brain injury and physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, I mean even um, non-therapy staff members can um, apply for the certification nursing nursing assistants um, could also become certified.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. Okay. Now when I hear, um, brain injury specialist, um, do they really narrow that down to specific types of brain injury? Like what types of population fall under this branch? Who, um, would you be able to use this, these skills and extra knowledge that you've acquired with in your patient population?
1: I had that same question when I started because I wasn't always working with traumatic brain injury patients. I also had patients who had non-traumatic brain injuries. And you, you know, this certification will prepare you to work with patients that have both um, acquired brain injury and traumatic brain injuries. So stroke, aneurysm, tumor, falls, motor vehicle accidents, sports injuries, um, even infectious diseases like meningitis or encephalopathy. Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So the whole range, like if anything happens to your brain, like this is a good certification because it's just, it's just all about the brain. It doesn't narrow it down to only traumatic brain injuries.
1: Exactly. And I think that's really important because there, most of the healthcare settings aren't Specific to traumatic brain injury. Most of most SLPs, I think, are seeing patients who have both traumatic and, and non traumatic brain injuries.
0: Yes, I would agree. It would yeah. be, you know, not helpful if this only just focused on like a, a small segment of the, yeah. the brain injured population that we may work with. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so when did you first get interested in? pursuing this certification. Um, were you like still in your CF? Did you learn about it then or later? Um, could this be appropriate Ooh. for someone in their CF? So it you could
1: apply as a clinical fellow, um, as long as you meet the requirements. And you may not meet the requirements quite as a clinical fellow, because you do have to have 500 hours of contact with brain injured individuals. Um, but I think it's relatively easy to quickly accumulate those hours, especially because uh, internships can count as the hours, so if you had a brain injury focused medical intern or externship, that could fo- that could be used towards your 500 hours. Um, I, you know, in the case of the CBIS, I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to have a certain amount of years under your belt to. To get the certification which is what makes it i think a little bit different from the other types of certifications out there it's a little more accessible to our new clinicians which is great because i feel like new clinicians are the ones that really need the extra foundation i'm speaking for myself personally i really felt that was beneficial and i decided that i wanted to become a brain injury specialist probably about a year and a half ago Um, And so I I took, I spent a lot of time sort of researching on the website and asking my friend, the occupational therapist who had the brain injury certification about her experience. And right when I was ready to get started with it, COVID happened. So it sort of could just derailed my plan completely.
0: (laughs) I'm really looking forward to hearing about that aspect as well, like how you've been able to navigate through um, the impact of COVID on acquiring this certification and what that has done for that that path that journey that you're on um okay so let's get into the nitty-gritty so Mm -hmm. i've made it let's say i've made a decision i want to become a certified brain injury specialist i'm i'm going for it what are the time costs the financial costs um and the I guess, well, the time just really encapsulates like all the work that I've got to put into the learning. So like, what are the continuing education hour um, like requirements there too?
1: Mm, Absolutely. So like I said earlier, you need 500 hours of verifiable direct contact experience with the brain injury population. And in order to track those hours, I tracked mine in an Excel spreadsheet. I was able to actually go back and check each day and whether or not my patients had brain injuries that I was working with, and I sort of backdated it. Um, But it's a little bit easier if you know you want to do it to just start ahead of time and start tracking your hours when you know that you'd like to sort of get started. So um, the experiences, like I said, can be paid or an academic internship. So the CF counts, um, but volunteer work doesn't count. So Um, the experience needs to include formal supervision. So in the case of an externship, that individual has to have a professional license that's in good standing, which I think most of them do. All of them should, (laughs) um, you have to have a high school diploma.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) There's really, no that won't be an issue for anyone. Um, you have to have your high school diploma again, not an issue for any of the SLPs applying and then that's it. So there are no requirements related to years of experience or CEU requirements to apply so it's pretty accessible to most speech pathologists oh.
0: So I don't have to do any additional formal like paid CEU experiences to like accrue like 75 CEU hours to apply for this certified brain injury specialist
1: not to apply initially now for maintenance you will have to Oh
0: Oh, Oh. okay. So it's like, it's like easy to get in, but then to maintain it, you have to demonstrate that you are staying abreast of current practices and diving into the literature and engaging in very structured learning experiences. Exactly. Okay. How many of those hours are required? All right. So for
1: upkeep... The annual renewal requirements are 10 hours of CEUs each year, and they do have to be CEUs specifically related to brain injury. And there are a lot of different options, but you have to have a minimum of two options, either state and national conferences, college and university courses, online courses, webinars. You could do journal article reviews as well. Um, So those are all of the options for the CEU requirements. And then the annual renewal process is a fee of $65. You can pay online or by check. And you actually keep your continuing education records on file. They're not going to ask for your renewal or your your continuing education uh, proof, but they they do random audits. And so you want to keep that on you. Um, And they say they recommend maintaining evidence of your CEUs for three years.
0: That sounds a lot like ASHA. (laughs) That that sounds identical to ASHA, actually, isn't it? 10 hours every, essentially every year. So it's 30. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm not even 100% sure. Is it 30 hours every three years for ASHA?
1: I'll be honest. I don't know because I always go over. So
0: (laughs) right. I I don't know
1: what the hour minimum is, but 30 sounds right to me.
0: Yeah. And then ASHA doesn't necessarily make you submit like a specialized form that shows all the hours and where they are. They do have a form where if you choose to record your own, you can record it because like um, that academy, then they, they also will do like random audits. So every year when you renew your ASHA license, you just check a box. Well, I'm sorry, when it's time for your CEU review, Mm -hmm. Um, then you just check the box saying like, yeah, I've done my 30 hours. Um, yeah, but of course, then Asha does have that option for you to just do their CE registry, and then yeah, they'll just automatically submitted. Right. So, okay, that's really interesting. I feel like that aligns oddly specifically <laughs> with Asha's guidelines. It does.
1: <laughs> I really I appreciate that. Really,
0: yeah, except for Asha, they're just they don't they just put it just has to be professionally relevant. Right. You know, they don't even have a requirement where if you work primarily with pediatrics, all your hours need to be pediatric or right. like nothing even that specific. So. Mm-hmm. All right. OK, cool. OK. Um, OK, I think. OK, you talked about the time commitment mm-hmm. to get um, to get the process started. Yeah. What about the financial commitment?
1: Yes. So this is kind of where it it diverges. So it costs. to apply to be a certified brain injury specialist. But if you are taking a course or if you are going to be using a certified brain injury specialty trainer as your proctor, you may have to pay more and it will vary. So if you're doing a self-study, it's going to cost you $300 for the application and if you use their book and their study guide, which I recommend, it's $190, but often the book and the, the companion study guide are on sale for $130. I think they are right now. So it's about, a, it's about $430 to become a certified brain injury specialist for a self-study track.
0: Okay. All right. And then you mentioned that there are uh, certified specialist trainers mm-hmm. to help people go through this. Um, what would be, have you had any experience, uh, going that route? Did you do the self-study?
1: So I did the self-study, but I was planning on connecting with a local certified brain injury specialty trainer who I found through the website. The website actually has a map and you can search for people in your state who have the CBIST, who could be a proctor or who could hold a course for you. Um, And you would kind of meet up together and that's all done on your own. So you kind of have to do a little bit of searching and connecting. I had to do some calling to different areas and different um, speech pathologists. And so that's what happened when COVID hit was we weren't able to then do that course like we had planned. Mm -hmm. So the certified brain injury specialty trainer and I were going to meet somewhere either in my city or in her city, which wasn't far away. And she was going to host a course that was going to take about, I think she said it was a one-day course for eight hours. Um, and at the end of it, I would take my test and then I would be certified. So you would proctor my test. And she said, I think at that time, she was going to charge me like a $100 or $150 for that work that she was going to be doing on her end. So that was going to be in addition to what I mm-hmm. had already paid for the course and book. And then the next option is there is a virtual course. And the only one that I'm currently aware of is by ARC Seminars. So if you go to arcseminars.net, they do a two-day virtual training. The first day is eight to five. The second day is eight to three. And their training costs $599. And I'm assuming that that includes everything you need. I'm assuming it includes the price for the to apply for the... Brain injury certification, the, the materials, the test. And this specific speech pathologist, it looks like it's just one speech pathologist, but I'm not sure, is doing um, these virtual, paired virtual and live events this coming year. So she's doing them in February, May, August, and November. So you could either choose to do it in a certain state or you could do the live version. So that's the virtual
0: course option. Okay. Um now if you decide to go with the the CBIST the trainer um like I'm assuming you're studying up until that course because it sounds like once you take the course then you're taking the test is that accurate
1: I believe so and I believe that the courses are set up where once you finish the course you're ready to take the test I don't know, but I don't believe that you would need to be studying before that. I think that they're set up like perhaps like MDTP where you're take, you're learning all of the material over the course of that, that session, the two days. And then after, you know, you're considered competent because you have all of the information. And so that's where I think that those two options are very different. And depending on the type of learner you are or what you want to get out of the process, you may choose one over the other.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense now because, yeah, I was like, all right, so do I need to be self-studying before I take this course with the trainer? But no, it sounds like if you're more of like that interactive type of learner who benefits from receiving instruction and being able to engage with the uh, the teacher, then that training option, the CBIST option, sounds really good. Also, very fast, <laughs> like immediate, <laughs> almost like immediate gratification. But if you're someone who likes to really like, like settle in and go at your own speed and review, like go back and review things and just let it marinate in your brain for a little while and not be like rushed or anything, (laughs) then it sounds like buy the book and do the self-study. Now, I think you mentioned earlier that the test needs to be proctored. Yes. So if you do the self-study option, how do you go about arranging for a test?
1: That's a great question. I had the exact same question. I really wasn't sure how to go about it. Um, So I did reach out to Dr. Christine Chen at the association. She was very helpful, very responsive to my emails. And because I had initially planned on doing this course with a trainer and that kind of didn't work out with COVID, I had to figure out a plan B. So then I got to figure out the opportunity, sort of, uh, what am I trying to say? I got to dig into another alternative option, which in my case was. Using my manager, um, she was she agreed to serve as my proctor for the the test. So, you know, my hospital was really supportive of this educational experience, and so she knew all about it. She's the one that verified my hours, and then she was willing to sort of proctor that exam for me. But there are special things that she had to do to make that happen, and so it's it can be a little challenging to make sure you get all of the pieces together in the right time frame. So. The proctor is going to be applying to be a proctor, as long as they are professional in the area of brain injury. So they can be an OT, a PT, you know, they could be a clinical um, director. They can proctor your test, but they have to schedule the test and they are going to receive the test link, which then will get sent up to us. And they have to sort of be there and sit in for your test. Um, so that's kind of how the proctor situation worked in my case. Um, it's a little bit, like I said earlier, the timing is tricky where, um, they, they want, they ask you to schedule a couple of different options for the date and time. Then the association will approve the test for a certain date and time. And then you sort of set yourself up to take it and get the link for the test.
0: And you know what I just realized? We really haven't talked about the association that represents this certification, Mm -hmm. the Brain Injury Association of America. Yes. I, I don't know. Maybe you've mentioned it before, but I was like, I don't know if we're talking about the BIAA. <laughs> like, whoops. <laughs> like, who is sponsoring this certification? Like, where is this coming from? Who's the body that is like making these standards and doing all of that? So, maybe if you could take a few minutes mm-hmm. and talk to me about the Brain Injury Association of America, who they are, what they do, and why they've kind of established this certification.
1: Absolutely. I had not heard of the Brain Injury Association of America or BIAA for short before I was interested in the CBIS. So they were, you know, an unfamiliar organization to me. So I did get, I enjoyed learning more about them. And now that I'm on their email list, they send me things all the time. And I just think they're doing wonderful work. They're of course certifying brain injury specialists and brain injury specialty trainers, but they're doing a lot of Outreach and research. They do um, a research grants program. They do. Um, they uh, they they host a lot of events in, in sort of like community outreach and outreach across the nation about brain injury for from an educational standpoint. And during Brain Injury Awareness Month, they send their therapists information on how to sort of get the information out there about brain injury in your community in your facility. Um, they also there is a journal that you get for free for one year after you become a brain injury specialist called the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation. And I believe this is through the Brain Injury Association of America. So they have, you know, with their research, they're also putting out a journal of uh, brain injury rehab too. So that's really interesting. They're doing research. They're trying to, they're trying to improve, I think, the care of, of people who have brain injury, um, increase awareness of brain injury, um, and just, I think better, better the world in terms of brain injury. So, yeah. Do you think that it would be beneficial to talk about the pro I have like a, an itemized list of the actual process. And I feel like when I was first starting, I really wanted to know exactly what the process was like. Do you think that would be helpful at all?
0: Absolutely. Yes. Let's do that, please.
1: Okay. So if you are a listener who wants to become a brain injury specialist, here's what you need to do. You need to set up your account with the Brain Injury Association. That's the first step. They're going to then send you your special number, which is really important to keep with you. When you're ready to apply, you're going to fill out their application form. It's brief. The, The questions are not that difficult to fill out. Um, yeah, like I, I kind of wrote myself a note that says non-intimidating, which I feel like is great in terms of applications. <laughs> um, and at the time that you apply, you're, that's when you're going to pay your fee. So be ready to pay when you apply. And then after you apply, they are going to want to Im- to verify your employment. So they are going to reach out to your contact to say, does this person have 500 hours that are verifiable with the brain injury population? So they're going to reach out to, in most cases, your employer. Um, If you don't have an employer because you are a private practitioner or for some other reason, you can have someone like a physician certify your hours, which is something someone specifically had asked about. I did say, I did ask the association, they said, you know, a a clinical colleague can attest to your hours um, in special cases after your appointment has been verified, then you're just waiting for the review. You're waiting for them to approve or decline your application. And for me specifically, my application was approved within two days. So it happened really quickly, but check for the email in your junk mail because I was not able to locate my email. So I was sort of wondering where it was, but it was sent. Mm. Then you're going to identify a proctor and schedule your test if you are going with the self-study route, which is what I did, if you are going with the route of the virtual course, I believe you would just sign up for that virtual course and that's all kind of set up for you. Then you, if you're doing a self-study route, you're going to study. If you get the book, you're going to read the book. I read the whole book. Some, I mean, you. some people read the whole book. Some people don't read the whole book. There is a study guide that comes with it where you can fill it out and this is sort of your study materials here then when you feel ready to take the exam if you're doing a self-study that's when you schedule that exam with your proctor and then you take the test and that's really it um i have some other notes in here about just sort of special situations specifically speaking about the test and speaking about other things i don't know if you want me to go into more detail but you're gonna receive notification right away if you are if you did pass your test.
0: Oh, okay, good, good. Yeah, I know people hate to wait. Like, it's like, tell me, did I pass or fail? It's just like, pull the Band-Aid off already. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think people would love to know more about the test-taking process, uh, maybe how the test is structured or whatever the notes are that you've made um, regarding the test process.
1: Certainly. Um, I am... I'm someone who likes to know things, kind of like you, Leanne. So I like to know all the nitty gritty, all the details. So um, the, the test is 70 multiple choice questions, which you must earn 80% to have it be a pass. It is not open book, and it must be supervised by your proctor. Um, the exam link is sent to your proctor immediately prior to the test. Um, and you will receive notification of your exam score upon completion, I had I waited I think about fifteen grueling minutes until my email arrived. <laughs> so I so after the test I was just so ready to hear and it did maybe it might take more than you know five or ten minutes so don't be worried but they will say congratulations if you've passed um, and if in the unfortunate event that you don't pass that first time you can retake the test one time with your in your initial application period which is one year so from the time you apply you have one year to finish studying and take your test. And then if you still need more time to prepare, you can always reapply. But I do believe that would include repaying your application fee. So um, you do have two chances to take the test and pass it.
0: All right. That sounds good. I hope that kind of like reduces some of that test anxiety. I know some people have. Um, So, okay, good. All right. Does that cover kind of that process? Are you ready to talk about like, now that you've acquired Those four special letters after your name that you get to tack on, um, what what do you do with it? What's it for? Like
1: exactly, um, I think that the brain injury specialty means different things for different types of individuals. Um, I think for some people, it's really exciting to have a specialty, and it's exciting because it may it may be beneficial for your workplace. You may be able to use it to help you. With a promotion, you may be able to get a pay raise. I think that varies by facility. Um, In my case, personally, um, I was just, I knew that it would be really important because I work with a brain injury population. I thought that it, you know, it's kind of as for SLPs, it's sort of our job to make sure that we know everything that we need to know for our patients so that we can do the very best for them. So I think that in that case, because there really isn't enough time in grad school to be focusing, you know, an entire course on brain injury unless maybe you know maybe you're very lucky and you did have one um but you know to really dig deep into brain injury like this is it's really great because again it's not just about the anatomy and physiology or um the physical outcomes of the brain injury this course really focuses on the whole person and not just the person, but their caregivers. And it focuses on, you know, mental health considerations with brain injury and return to work considerations with brain injury. And if you're working at any type of a rehab facility, those are really important considerations. And you might be the first person that brings that up at your con- team conference meeting or, you know, brings that up to your case manager or to or to a colleague um, so it really helps sort of set a speech therapist up to be an expert in that area where you can you can educate your peers, you can collaborate better with your peers, um, especially physicians. So having that little bit of extra education, the extra letters after your name, I think sort of sets a precedent for you being more of an expert. And then what you do with that is sort of up to you. I think it's kind of like you get out of it what you put in. So if you are if you really want to become a brain injury expert you know, you're going to need more than just the CBIS, in my opinion. Um, I just took ASHA's, ASHA had a, a traumatic brain injury course. It was fantastic. Um, it was about 26 hours of brain injury coursework. And that went a little bit more above and beyond than this did. So I think that it certainly isn't the end all be all, but it could be if that sort of suits you and your needs. Um, but again, like I said, it's it's what you make of it.
0: Yes, I agree. I, mean, like, I like. I love that sentiment, though. It really, like, isn't everything in life just what you make of it? Like, what you put in is what you will get out. And so why would this certification be any different from any, like, any of the other scenarios? Yeah. So I think that's really, really well put. Like, it will mean different things to different people. Um, it will have different results for you. So I think, um, I, yeah, I just wanted to kind of really unpack and get a really clear picture of What is the commitment that you're putting into it? What is the return on that commitment? Mm -hmm. And then where do you take it from there? Once you have like acquired this title, this specialization, um, that it doesn't stop there. Right. Because you mentioned there's certification. So let's Mm -hmm. dig in a little bit more into the certification. Um, what does that look like? The um, Okay, so when I say the certification, am I thinking the renewal? Should you I mean, be more specific?
1: I think you mean the annual renewal.
0: Yes, thank you. Because we're certified now. We're living okay. in the world where we're certified. Yes. We have the, the CBIS tacked onto our name, um, but it doesn't last forever. Like it's right. not a one and done. So tell me more mm-hmm. about the renewal. Process.
1: Exactly. So we had, we touched a little bit on it earlier, but those 10 hours of CEUs required each year in the area of brain injury. So you're going to want to sort of seek out additional education opportunities. So, like I mentioned, Asha has that incredible course you could take on brain injury. And since I can't think of the name of it, um, I think it's maximizing outcome, functional outcomes for brain injury individuals. But I, we can always link that in the show notes. Um, so, you know, it's, Again, be, I do feel like the certific- certification itself is accessible. And I also think that the annual renewal requirements are accessible too. They're not saying you know, you have to have you know, these really specialized, expensive CEUs. They're saying you know, if you can't afford or if these CEUs aren't accessible to you, here are other options like journal article reviews, which if you have an ASHA membership, there are journal-, journal articles that would potentially meet the requirements for that. Um, you could also do journal study groups which I thought was really interesting. I didn't dig too deep into that, but that's another continuing education opportunity and potentially a really interesting initiative that you could start in your facility or in your community. So those 10 hours of CEUs required each year, the $65 to renew each year. And then there is a brain injury renewal form, which I did peek at, and it's pretty simple, very much... um, non-intimidating in the same way that the initial certification um, or the initial application form is non-intimidating. So, and again, like I said earlier, they want you to just keep track of your records. You may get audited. So just make sure you have the records of those, whether that be by, I'm assuming maybe a, an email confirmation.
0: Making sure in my mind that you're committing to a minimum of 10 hours a year, um, just addressing this area. But that doesn't mean at the expense of the other areas of our scope of practice and the other um, areas that you're still treating on your caseload. So it's really a commitment to increasing the amount of learning that you're going to do every year. Um, and for some people who pursue this, they're probably like, that just fits right in with how I already practice and how yeah. I already spend my like CEU budget or my extra time on this area. So, all right. Very good.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think some people might be thinking, because I've had some people ask me about, you know, how long did it take for you to study? How much of a time commitment is the self-study? And I think that's another great question because we're really busy. And I think adding that on in addition to other things that other responsibilities people have um, can be intimidating. But for me, I it took I just took like one or two chapters a week and it, I just spent like a month or two reading the book slowly and filling out the study guide. And after I finished, I just started reviewing the study guide, and you'll, you'll kind of know when you're ready. Um, you know, I think other people have asked me, you know, if the test is intimidating or challenging, and of course, I can't speak to the test specifically, but I will say that I do think that the, the coursework prepares you well, but it is important to be very familiar with the book and the, the topics. Um, I thought that the test was appropriately challenging given the, the, given the content. So this isn't one of those ones where you're going to be able just to go in blind. Um, but it's also, in, again, like everything else in this in this course or certification, it's accessible.
0: That's awesome. Now I'm really fascinated. Like, you know, you did like a, a self-study course. I'm like really tempted to be like if I went the CBIST route and did like one of their in-person classes and then took the test and that was like all I did mm-hmm. like would I be able to pass like now I'm like ooh, a challenge I'm so curious <laughs> you I ring ring, I have one on Instagram who is CBIST she is a trainer and she posts um announcements of when she's holding her trainings. And I've always been kind of curious, like, well, you know, if I don't live in the town with you, like, how does that work? And then like, is this a, like, i just, I never really like dug much deeper into it, but now I'm like, Ooh, this might be fun. Like I have a connection. So if anyone like yeah. just wants to kind of like scout it out or talk to, um, a super passionate SLP who loves the brain injury population, she's a past guest on the podcast, Dr. Elena davis from howard university um she is certified brain injury specialist trainer and so just follow her on instagram at overall neuro and she just first of all she posts a ton of great content about everything neuro and then like if people had questions about that going that route i bet she'd be a terrific resource too Oh, I hope she doesn't mind me like <laughs> saying all this on the podcast. That I hope that I can on Instagram. It's there for you. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So
1: yeah, you know, bringing that up. It's great. The CBIS is also kind of, it could lead you into even more opportunities like becoming a trainer, which is another thing that I really like about it. It does, I think you have to do a lot more to be a trainer and it's a little bit more intimidating, but I feel like if, if this is your jam and you love working with the brain injury population, you could, you know, you could really work toward that and then just continue learning and training other people. I feel like that's sort of, that's sort of the whole purpose of it, right? It's just to be Trying to educate and, and help other people and on their journey. So that's pretty neat.
0: Yeah, I love that. So okay, cool. Yeah, I think when I interviewed her, like maybe the second time on the podcast, I think she had just gone through the certification to become a trainer. And it it was, she I think we talked about it briefly, and it was it's strenuous and it's challenging. But she loves it, right? So it was like a challenge that she was really encouraged to to meet and to overcome, and um, like, and then to be able to share that knowledge and continue to train other SLPs to specialize in this information and to be more empowered. And um, I feel like even more courageous, courageous when working with this population, right? Yes. Because it, there is so much to know, and it's a great place mm-hmm. to get a really firm foundation. So. Cool beans. What else do we need to cover? What what other really fun questions have people peppered you with?
1: Oh, okay. I do have a list. Let me check. So a big question was, do clinical fellowship hours count? Yes. Um, How much is the application fee? We discussed that. Does non-traumatic brain injury count? Yes. Um, Is the certification worth it? Like we said, it depends on how you use it. Um, and then how do you take the class was another big question. So I feel like it's, people mostly had questions about how do I, how do I get into this? Because the association really sets you up well for the process, but then they kind of say, however you want to work on getting yourself trained and, and educated is sort of up to you. And I think this hopefully will fill the gap there for that little bit of knowledge that I think was, um, missing for some clinicians.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that. I like that they're very flexible because that self-study option, I feel like, can really help people who, you know, work full time, who have children they're raising, who are very engaged in their community and other facets, you know, who, who don't just have an abundance of time uh, to maybe take a couple days off and do a course or something like that. Um, yeah. Or maybe vice versa. They are really busy. And the only way they could do this is if they take a day off work mm-hmm. and do a course and then boom, they're done. Well, exactly. done with that part of it. Because yes. as we know, um, it's a continuation and a dedication um, to, to work on it and maintain it. So, yeah, I, I just like options, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, I like flexibility. And it sounds like this certification program has it. Now, if you feel like you've kind of covered most of those um, frequent questions that you get, I would love a really quick comparison to Mm -hmm. some of the other certifications that are out there. Certainly. All right. So I know that there is the ANCDS certification, and that's the Academy of Neurological and Communication Disorders. And Sciences. And sciences. Yep. Yeah. Okay, almost oh. Science there. <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> Thank you for practicing. <laughs> oh, I
1: feel like that's a skill in and of itself, is just knowing what all the acronyms stand for in our field.
0: <laughs> right? Do, can I get like credit as being bilingual in acronyms? Probably not, but I'll, I'll try. Oh, that's great. Okay.
1: Yes, so for the ANCDS... You need five years of experience in the field to start, and you need 60 hours of continuing education within the last three years, three letters of recommendation, a resume, and it can take up to two years to complete the process. So you could potentially, if you're just starting in the field, you could potentially be looking at seven years from now, if you just started, you could be and at the in the on the long end So it's quite not a long, around, are they right they're not at all and I think that it, <laughs> it's a different type of certification they're really I think this is for people that really want to be experts in the neurologic communication disorders. Um, so the way that they do this the way that they identify whether or not you're an expert in the area is by having you write two case studies. And I've actually read through some of the example case studies, and they are very intense. So it's very much the entire patient, everything about them from their lesion location to their social history, to the therapy, the evaluation, the outcome. You have to cover eight content areas and complete an oral presentation and discussion, which is reviewed by a three-person review team of experts.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're not playing around. Not playing around. I would say one of the biggest. Well, there's very many differences between the two. Um, one of them that stands out is. I'm thinking this is clearly sim- only for speech and language pathologists.
1: I believe that you are correct. I didn't confirm that. But I believe that's right, because it's communication disorders and sciences. I would assume it's just for speech pathologists.
0: You know, they may open it up to um, sister fields, but I, I think it's, it's, it's built primarily for SLPs. OK, yeah. so you have to like before you can even apply, you have had to have accrued 60 hours of continuing ed within the last three years. So you're not applying to this on a whim. No, this is an, an investment, a very detailed investment of your time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of it. cost,
1: it's $125 for members and $210 for non-members. So I don't think that the cost is is too, you know, cumbersome. Um, and the renewal is $240 and 60 hours of CEUs every three years.
0: So you just pay that fee every three years, or is that $240 renewal fee yearly?
1: So what they do is they actually break up their renewal fee across the three years. So they're going to charge you, I think, don't quote me on the math, $80 every year. So it's not $240 in one lump sum. All
0: right. And then I'm... Okay. So basically, is that... Is that okay? No. All right. So that's their certification process. So I'm just wondering if that maintenance fee is just maintenance, like does that maintenance fee include like membership to ANCDS mm-hmm. or would you have to pay a mm-hmm. separate like membership fee once you're certified by them as a specialist?
1: That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, cause I don't actually know how much it costs to be a member. I didn't check on that they would be nice if it was, if it covered it, but I would, I would guess, mm, I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing that they would probably have a separate membership fee, but it would be really great of them. If if it was included in one, that would be actually wonderful. And you're sort of just a member for free. I guess that makes sense if you're if you're an ANCDS um, board certified, but yeah.
0: Okay. Um, All right. So within our field, would you say the CBIS and the ANCDS board certification are the only two things really available for SLPs to pursue within the uh, brain injured community or the communication sciences kind of area that specialize like in the, that realm, that population?
1: That I'm aware of it is, but I would love to hear if anyone has any other that they've, that they've heard of. I just haven't heard of any other ones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think those are the only two. Um, but who knows, maybe there's something else out there.
0: Okay. Um, now you also prepared some material to compare it to board certification specialist in swallowing. So I didn't know if you wanted to spend a few minutes to kind of compare it to that process. Oh, wait, sorry. Before we go into that, um, I hope we made it really clear that like for the CBIS program, that is, Um, created by the Brain Injury Association of America, Mm -hmm. like we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And the ANCDS is an organization as well that has their own board certification. And so ANCDS is the organization behind the ANCDS board certification. So (laughs) I hope that makes that clear as mud. Now, for board certification and swallowing, who is behind that?
1: So that is the ooh, so they have a very interesting acronym. I think it's like a s s d can't actually think of it now um, I'm sorry now I have to look that up it, it is it's a b s s d that's the they're the American board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders that's the name of of that organization, and then they offer the BCSS, which is the board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to know who, who's the organization promoting this certification? Like what, what role do they play in our community? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's like when you read research, like know your source. Like,
1: <laughs> You're so right, Leanne. I think that that sort of goes along with just being really someone who's, interested in knowing things, right? We want to know the source and we want to know who, who to go to for information. And so I feel like that information being out there is super helpful. In terms of the BCSS, you need to have three years of experience working with patients or people with dysphagia after your clinical fellowship has been completed. So in this case, the CF doesn't count. You need to have 75 hours of dysphagia-related continuing education within a three-year time period, and they have really specific requirements for how you get those 75 hours. So 45 of those must be ASHA-approved hours, and 30 of those must be from in-person conferences. So for example, if you wanted to go to the Charleston Swallow Conference, which isn't held annually, but I went a couple of years ago, that would count. And so would the DRS, Dysphagia Research Society Conference, if you went to that, that one would count. And the exception is for the year 2020, where they are now only requiring 20 hours of in-person conferences versus 30 if the year 2020 is included in your three-year time period because of COVID, of course.
0: I don't think that's really, I'm, I'm going to say it. I don't think that's really helpful. Like who is doing in-person conferences right now? Like, I don't know how you're going to get those hours. Like nobody is meeting.
1: <laughs> I thought the same thing, Leanne. And I was thinking that I'm not really even sure if a lot of organizations are going to have 2021 conferences. So um, my guess is they're hopefully going to pivot you know as things as things change and develop i appreciate that they were pivoting for the year 2020 and i'm sure that they would potentially you know consider special cases for people where their two of their three years were you know majority 2020 2021 or something like that in addition so just a couple of other interesting things about the courses themselves that you can take if you took a dysphagia course in college I, that counts as ten hours if you submit a, a transcript. I don't know what the time period is. Like if you took a dysphagia course in like two thousand, does that still count? I'm I'm curious. I don't know the answer to that, but I would definitely send them an email and ask.
0: No, I think it's like if you if you audit it or if you do pay like the tuition, if you take it like now, like if you just went back and took it. I don't I don't think it counts like back when you were in school. I think it's part of that three-year time period. That, that would be my guess.
1: That makes more sense to me. Thank you. And then if you're an instructor in dysphagia, that counts as 35 hours. Oh, fancy. Yeah. And so that kind of leads into the two different tracks. So there are there's the clinical track and then there's the academic administrative track. And there are different requirements for the amount of hours you have to have and the types of CEUs that count in those tracks. So, if you're a clinician, you need 350 clock hours for each of the 3 years prior to applying and it has to be in evaluation and treatment of dysphagia, of course. And if you are supervising a student or a clinical fellow of so someone providing dysphagia treatment, that that supervision can count as 100 hours. Yeah. And then, if you are on the academic or administrative track, you just need a hundred clock hours for each of those three years, um, and then you need to have uh, four hundred and fifty hours accrued in diagnosis and treatment in the four years prior to applying. So it just it it sort of allows for someone who's not really that clinically based to still apply. So that covers the continuing education and the amount of clock hours, and then there is. There are a lot of different areas where you can demonstrate advanced skill with this in dysphagia. So for a clinical track, you might demonstrate advanced skill by completing activities and education and mentorship, leadership opportunities, scholarship and research. Um, you know, if you're in if you're in academia, maybe you're publishing an article. Um, There are a lot of different things you can do. For example, you could go to ASHA and present, and that would count as an advanced skill. Um, If you started a support group or some sort of an outreach program in your community related to dysphagia, that would count. But that's where it changes for each individual person. You know, maybe somebody has more of a research focus or maybe someone has more of a clinical focus. It works for different kinds of clinicians. So whatever you're really focused in, If you want to do a lot in one specific area to demonstrate advanced skill, you can focus there. But they do want, I think they want really well-rounded individuals with a lot of experience in dysphagia. Um, And then, of course, there's the exam after that. So you have to take an exam, pass that exam. They don't release the information on the exam. I don't know what the format of that exam is, but um, it is I believe it covers... I guess I don't remember if it covers both peds and adult. I I think you might have an option to choose peds versus adult for the exam, but don't quote me on that. I'm not sure.
0: Um, This might just be my like pandemic fatigue talking, but I'm like, that's, that's just a lot of bean counting. Like I got to like track my hours and like write everything down. And I'm just like, that's, that's a lot of work, (laughs) which I would. Here's the ironic part. I would be doing the work anyway, but then to ask me to track it, it's like I'm out. <laughs> just, I can't add one more thing to to my like brain during the day anymore. It's like mm. no thanks. Mm. Like, I'm just, just going to have to keep doing my own like self study, like self excellence, and just not put the acronym after my name. That's how I feel about that right now. Mm-hmm. I'm blaming COVID for it, so.
1: <laughs> I think you bring up a really good point saying that. I think that, and I'm just speaking for myself here. And I think for other people, uh, peers that I've talked to, um, there can be a lot of you know fatigue just with the amount of information that's out there. Which we live in a an absolutely beautiful time right now, where there is so much information available to all of us via you know Facebook articles, uh, subscription sites. Um, social media sometimes is extremely educational um, <laughs> for certain people that are, you know, po- posting daily about, I mean, it's very interesting the time that we're living in. Um, but at the same time, I think that can be really exhausting for us because we have such a wide scope. And sometimes it's really difficult to stay up to date on everything. So, um, you know, the idea of, of you know, initiating a process like this, where it's it's going to take so much extra work, I could see that being, a challenge for a lot of SLPs that are, you know, have a lot on their plate already. Um, so I think this is a very sp- specific uh, group of, of clinicians that are actually really trying to hyperfocus in one area. Um, and I would say, conversely, like you said, there are probably a lot of therapists that are already doing or meeting most of this require these uh, criteria already. Um, where it might just take a little bit of organization and sitting down and figuring out where you have to fill the gaps and you might be well on your way to one of these certifications.
0: Yeah. And then that kind of brings me back to, you know, what we sat down to talk about, the CBIS certification. And like you said, like this is one of the most accessible certifications out there, right? It is, that's exactly it. It is highly accessible. Whereas these other two require so much (laughs) counting of hours and um which is good, right? We we want really dedicated, really hardworking people who are diligently achieving excellence in the field to be recognized in this way. Like I don't want to discount one certification over the other or make it seem like one is quote easier or less intensive. So it doesn't matter as much. That is not the case whatsoever. Um I just know that you know, Leanne today, re- sitting down recording with you is mm-hmm. like, very fatigued. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah. she is like, judging these just based on like, the the extra, not that I would add any more education work to my caseload. But it's like, it's just that little stuff right now that like, I just have zero tolerance for. Mm-hmm. But the, the work of learning and of achieving that competency to better serve our patients. Like that is, that is a constant. That is Mm. something I always Mm. want to work towards. Um, I just think it is, it's really interesting to be like, if you do these extra jump through these extra hoops, then you can be recognized for that work that you're already likely doing by being able to put these letters after your name. Mm. So sometimes in my mind, that's all it comes down to. Yes. Do you want to jump through these extra hoops, pay these extra fees, Mm -hmm. um, and, and track this extra stuff to be recognized for that specialty that you you may already be mm-hmm. essentially achieving on your own. So I don't know if that's where this conversation needed to go or why it went there, <laughs> but that's that's me today. So <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that when you compare when you compare them, that's sort of where the discussion goes, and you know that's not a it's it's certainly you know there all of them are fantastic opportunities for any speech therapist. But I also think that as a field, and this is a bit of a soapbox, but we just have to make sure that we're giving all SLPs opportunities and not just SLPs that have certain um, means or access. Um, we want all the therapists to have access and the, and the information and sort of empower each other to, to go after those things and make sure that they're accessible to everybody. And I will say... There is a cost associated with it, which I think is a barrier for some clinicians. Um, But again, you know, my facility paid for my course because they are working on becoming CARF certified in stroke, in stroke CARF certification, which is specialized for um, rehab facilities. Um, And it really makes your organization, if you work for an organization, it makes them look better when their therapists and clinicians have advanced certifications. So if you can find a way to really demonstrate that value to them, it will hopefully have, it will hopefully encourage them to support more clinicians financially to seek those additional certifications.
0: Excellent, yes, Marie, yes. I love what you said about, you know, it's not, it's not about creating barriers that some SLPs don't have the access to achieve certifications like this. And it doesn't mean that they're any less specialized than the SLPs who do have access to mm-hmm. those things and who can jump through these hoops. So um, I think I was, I was, I don't know, maybe I, I felt that way. I just wasn't able to express it because yeah. that's that's where I feel too. I don't want it to make it seem like you're not passionate enough or you're not knowledgeable enough about this this specialty if you don't have these acronyms behind your name. If you do have access to these services, if you do have the time and, and, and you're not like fatigued out like Leanne right now, <laughs> like by all means, go pursue a specialized certification like you do you, boo. But if you're if you're in Leanne's boat right now and <laughs> you're just really happy that you're showing up every day and giving your best for your patients, mm-hmm. then keep mm-hmm. doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Super. All right. Shall we end on that note?
1: <laughs> that seems like a good place to end.
0: <laughs> all right, uh, I'm giggling all nervously because I'm like, ooh, did I overshare? Oh, I hope not. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. All right. all right, good. All right, Marie, this was wonderful. You did so much prep work. You brought so much information. You did leg work. You reached out to um, the brain injury Association of America to check your facts and make sure you are representing the process accurately. So thank you for the work that you put in um, to share this information with our listeners. I really appreciate it.
1: I am so grateful to have been on this podcast, Leanne. I can't thank you enough for um, giving me a platform to share this with your listeners. And I just want to say to all of you listening, you're doing the very best you can right now and you are enough and hang in there.
0: That's so awesome. Girl, that's what I needed to hear today. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish.